Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. Actually, you know what? That, this week, that's that's kind of only half true. This is this is uh, this is another one of those episodes where where I'm actually going to put out an episode of, of someone else's podcast on which I appear to talk about what is what is to be fair a, a, a cinematic key topic, which which I had talked about doing an episode here, and we just you know we decided we'd do a, a crossover. That was that was several months ago now. This is this episode, as you'll, you'll see from some of the, the very topical references within it, uh, was actually recorded in in late September, I believe. But it's an episode of a podcast called The Zeitgeist Tapes, uh, which is put together by by Emma Bennell, the writer and activist who who a while back came on the Skyline to talk about history of local government, and by her co-host Professor Stephen Fielding, the as a politics professor at the University of Nottingham. And mostly we are going to talk about, or we did talk about, um, mostly the subject in question that is. Uh, is one of my favourite BBC dramas. I think called Our Friends in the North, which if you if you haven't if you haven't seen it, then well the whole thing's going to be a bit mystifying to you. But if you haven't seen it, I really suggest you stop this right now I and mean, stop everything. In fact, stop work, stop your your social life. Just go and sit down for nine hours and watch Our Friends in the North. Uh, I'll give you a quick precy. It's it, it stars Christopher Eccleston and Daniel Craig, Mark Strong, and Gina McKee among others. So the story starts in in Newcastle in 1964. And goes all the way to to uh, 1995. You see these characters. These are four characters uh, over over 30 years of their life. During the course of which we we get a lot of stuff about the history of the Labour Party. There's a lot of social housing policy in there. There's a lot about the decline of uh, Newcastle and the North in general. So you can kind of really see why this is this is the ideal cinematic drama. I first I first watched this not on broadcast actually I first watched this in about 2003 uh, and firstly that did very strange things to my my mind because having me you're watching this drama in which you constantly have stuff going on in the background just just to remind you which year you happen to be in this time uh, you start like I sort of walking around the place and was hyper aware of like news reports about the invasion of Iraq in the background feeling like I was in the 2003 episode of my my own life that's that's probably a rough personal psychosis though. but anyway when I first watched it I managed to watch it something like three times in in the space of of about a year and a half, I think, because I loved it so much. I mean, it is fundamentally about Doctor Who and James Bond growing up together in 60s Newcastle and trying to form a rock band. Where can you go wrong, really? But yeah, as you say, it was a, it's, a, it's something I've been talking about doing a, a Skyline special on for a while, possibly with, with the New Statesman guys, because obviously it's, it's got a, it's also a piece of pop culture, so we could have got seriously involved. It's about the, the Labour Party, so we could have got uh, Stephen and Helen from the, from the main podcast involved. But in the end, uh, went a different way, decided to do this thing with, with, with Emma and Steve for the Zeitgeist tapes. So, so most of, most of this episode is really just, is really just that. It's a very long and nerdy conversation about, about the drama, about social housing policy and police corruption, uh, and cities. Before we get to that though, I did realize as I sat down to record this, that, um, this is kind of our, our birthday edition. You know, it's, 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 I think the first episode of Skylands came out on, on, I think February the 6th, 2016. Um, so this is, this is, it's February 1st as I record this. So this is as close as we're going to get to our sort of second birthday edition. The first birthday edition, I got, uh, I, I, I got 
uh, Stephanie was still around, so we got, I just got Barbara back, our, my original co-host, and I just got, uh, Royfield, who, who produced the early episodes, Royfield Brown, uh, came on, um, you know, it was just a proper sort of celebration. This, this time it's, uh, well, as you get older, you don't feel the need to celebrate all your birthdays in the same way, do you? You know, but, uh, anyway, thank you, thank you all for, for, for listening to this nonsense and staying with us. It's, there's, as I think I've said before, there's, there's, there's more of you listening to this then than I sometimes think we deserve. Uh, and I do, I do appreciate that. It's always sort of nice when, uh, in political conference season last year, a number of people came up to me to tell me they listened to the podcast. And yes, it's, it's nice to, to know that you're out there. So do feel free to, to get in touch. It's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, as you've probably noticed by now, I kind of have a very fragile ego and it's always kind of nice to, to know people are paying attention to my rubbish. Anyway. From from here on until till quite near the end of the tape, I might come back at the very end. But from here till quite near the end of the tape, it's going to be uh, an episode of, of the Zeitgeist tapes from from last October. Obviously, it would be remiss of me at this point not to mention that you should uh, you should subscribe to the Zeitgeist tapes as well, and also follow both Emma and Steve on Twitter. Anyway, let's take it away. <laughs> monthly podcast um, hosted by myself Emma Burnell and Professor Stephen Fielding. Hello Steve. Um, this is Professor Steve saying hello yes. Hello uh, and we're delighted this week that we're joined by journalist John Elledge who is the editor of the City Metric blog for the New Statesman. Hi John. Hello how are you doing Emma? I'm very good how are you? Yeah I'm pretty good. We're very excited about Labour Conference this weekend as you know as you would be. Absolutely. So that's going to be wild. Uh, a week by the seaside, that's how I'm looking at it. <laughs> um, so we have a few things that we wanted to talk about this week, uh, sorry, this month. Um, but the first thing is our very exciting contest that we ran over the weekend on the Zeitgeist Tapes Twitter, which was the World Cup of Political Television. And, yeah, we got lots and lots of people getting involved. We had lots of people voting. We started with 32 different shows, uh, so I won't name them all here, but you can go onto our Twitter stream at, which is ZT, at ZT Podcast to have a look. Um, but the final boiled down to quite an interesting contest, particularly given current times, between uh, the West Wing and the thick of it. So we had a contest between what you might call American idealism and British cynicism, in which it's quite fair to say that the final result, American idealism, took quite a big hit at the thick of it, winning about 66% of the final vote, I believe. So... Was the right? Did the right show win, John? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not wild about this. I have to say, uh, <laughs> because I, th- I think maybe because I'm such a cynical sort the whole time. I quite like the idealism of the West Wing. I, I really like. I mean, some of some of the early stuff kind of greats. It's dated pretty badly and greats a little bit when they were sitting there saying "God bless America" and you'll throw up. But generally speaking, I do much much prefer the West Wing. I found the thick of it a bit too depressing, precisely because I suspect that's exactly how it works. <laughs> See, I'm somewhere in the middle. I have to say, I like both shows. I think they're both great shows. I watch them, rewatch them um, regularly. But I think the reality lies somewhere between the two. Um, people are generally better than they come off in the thick of it, but there ain't no, no way as good as they come off in the West Wing. No, but they do kind of... I, I, I do sort of think that people don't generally go into politics for entirely selfish reasons, because if you really just want kind of like money or glory or something, there are much, much better ways of getting Absolutely. there. Well, you're not going to have to sort of deal with like members of the public calling you all sorts of names every five minutes. I just don't see... I, I don't quite buy into this sort of purely cynical view of politics. I think there is an element of idealism from you know, from people on both sides of the fence, really. Oh, no, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, and that's why, as I say, I think I, I fall somewhere in the middle of the thick of it and the West Wing. I don't think... I think the West Wing is overdone in its idealism. And, and when they make mistakes, they don't even make them for good reasons. You know, there, there is very little cynical calculation. 
um, of which there is a bit in every walk of life. Uh, but I don't think that it's anywhere like as bad as it as the, the thick of it. And I think the thick of it is possibly quite damaging to the way that people view politics. Steve, what do you think? I, I do think the thick of it um, is, is quite damaging um, in actual fact. Um, and if more people actually watched it, um, it would have been quite damaging. Because um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was always surprised by how few people really you know, did, did actually watch when when it when it went on to BBC Two in the last two seasons, it it never made uh, the top twenty of BBC Two programs. You know, Dad's Army and gardening programs and all that kind of stuff were more popular, which meant that less than one million people were watching it a week. And and I, I thought until then everybody was watching it because everybody I knew was watching it. Mm. And and so in a way, I think the think of it appealed to people that liked politics and knew that it wasn't really all like that. Um, and they were mostly the ones that were watching it. And, you know, it was a very Westminster bubble kind of a thing. But mm. but ultimately it was. It was extremely damaging to to how, you know, if people from outside saw it and thought, is this a reflection of how politics is? Um, and everyone was so one dimensional as well. I mean, the, the one thing about the West Wing, obviously it was an hour long drama, whereas the thick of it was only for like for half an hour. Mm. But at least in the West Wing, the people within the White House, of course, they were very idealised. But people outside, the people they engage with, often, you know, those Republicans that they had to deal with, that, you know, there was nuance. Not everybody was bright eyed and bushy tailed. And so there was, there was, like I say, there was some nuance in it. Whereas in the thick of it, the Tories were, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, we all, we all assume it was, you know, based on New Labour. Yeah. The people inside, they, 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 they were deeply cynical. The people outside the Tories, they were all deeply cynical. You know, there, there was no nuance in it. It was, a, it was a, in a way, it was like a one-joke show. And the jokes were quite good up to a point. The swearing was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, beyond, beyond any question, the swearing, you know, was, 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 was great. Some of the phraseology was great. But it was a rather simplistic kind of take on, on politics. Everybody's a liar. Um, whereas the West Wing... Yeah, I mean, it all came from a sort of patriotic liberalism, a belief in the possibilities of the American Constitution. But not everybody was an angel, um, certainly outside the White House anyway. See, I kind of feel like we talk a lot about the damage that, that the West Wing idealism has done to... I mean, like I've heard it said that the episode Let's Bartlett be Bar- Let Bartlett Be Bartlett did a lot of damage to Ed Miliband by making him think that Let Miliband Be Miliband was a solution rather than just kind of amplifying the problem. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I think we, we don't really talk about the damage done by something like The Fig of It, where I think it did kind of... Mm lean into that idea that a lot of people have that you know politicians are all inherently cynical inherently out for themselves and they're just trying to avoid the next crisis and get the next rung up the greasy the greasy pole um and i think you know both both versions of of politics can be damaging there are times where you can you probably do need both of those you know but at the same time both can do a lot of damage no absolutely i i mean i have to say i i mean i've written about this in the past the problem with the West Wing for me is not the West Wing the show which I adore and I listen to the West Wing <clears> weekly re- religiously and I enjoy it completely but the amount of 20 something young men running around in I don't know Ulverston <clears> or uh, Bolton who think they're Josh and Toby and you're just like do get over it <laughs> But that's not the fault of the, that's not the fault of our resource. It's the audience. Sometimes the audience is 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 terrible. You know, the audience takes from things all kinds of things that the people that make 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 the thing don't want them to. So I think that's a bit unfair to blame um, Aaron Sorkin for, for for you know for dweebs going about in, in politics trying to glamorise themselves. But I know what you mean. I mean, I've I've I was at, um, the only time I've ever been in number eleven. That was. I was at a seminar and and people were talking about, you know, Leo, Leo as if he was a real person. Yeah, you know, yeah, they were yeah. saying anecdotes on the show like they were exemplifying <laughs> real life. No, I, I so, mean, yeah, I, they, I think that's absolutely true. There are issues. And you, the amount of times that you just get told um, that the thick of it is New Labour and it's a, it's a documentary, really. Uh, is that is a much more damaging thing. And I think much more in, intended by the makers. Mm. And and the thing about the thick of it is there is no hope. And now I know it's a comedy and, you know, we don't want to set this bar too high for a comedy. But but it, it was, you know, it does have political things to say. And um, Ian Iannucci does have, you know, have a political platform and he has sp- spoken about 
politics. And, and even ironically, I think in 2017, he was saying people should overcome their cynicism and go out and vote, which I thought, well, that's remarkable, given, <laughs> given, your, given your track record. But there is literally no hope. The people are stupid and over-demanding. The politicians are craven. Um, the, the spin doctors are domineering and only looking from one crisis to another. And no, there's, there's nobody who's any good. Now, obviously, in the West Wing, everybody's good. Uh, but at least there's some hope and possibility that things, you know, politics isn't just a cesspool um, without you know, going over into the completely naive thing. But but, yeah, the thick of it, there's just nothing there other than this deep cynicism that politicians are all about lying. I think also both shows are very much of their the time. Like mm. there is a danger in the the permanent now we live in with Netflix and so on in sort of starting to take these things as kind of having universal uh, applicability. Whereas actually, like, the figure of it was basically about New Labour and to a lesser extent the coalition years, and um, you know the world moves on. Like early West Wing makes a lot more sense when you remember that it was created in, in the late 1990s when the U.S. was like the only global superpower. It was unchallenged. It was the, the Francis Fukuyama end of history stuff. And, and, you know, two years in, 9-11 happens, and it takes about 18 months for the West Wing to work out how the hell to deal with that because it doesn't fit in with the kind of optimistic view of the future. It's, it's pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even, I mean, there's, there are some really dark episodes in the West Wing when, when Bartlett first commissions, the, you know, the, the military to take out a terrorist. Now, we're, we're meant to think that's good because we're patriotic Americans, you know, watching the program. But he, ha- you know, there are moral issues which the program raises about, about whether that's right or wrong. And they ultimately decide it was the right thing to do. Um, but, but it does, even, even the West Wing has some, some complexity to it. Um, whereas, the thick of it it's just everybody's allying you know you know just after their own careers they did give malcolm quite a good ending though in the thick of it um the his final speech to the not the leveson inquiry whatever it was called in the Mm. in the show um actually was that nuance that we've been seeking i mean it was only one moment but it was quite cathartic i think for a lot of people in politics who'd felt slightly hard done by by the show no, I, I completely agree with you there. That that was that was really interesting the way that they ended it when he basically said, because he was basically on trial for being Malcolm, wasn't he? Yeah. And and be, be, you know being the arch spin doctor, the evil villain, and he and, and he turned round and basically said, well, you're all to blame. You know, I do this because this is what you are. This is what you want. Mm. And and so it was like an omni culpa. And and I thought that was good, but that was the last gasp yeah. of it, wasn't it? Um, it didn't really underpin the rest of the, the, the preceding show. Yeah, no. Well, I think we should probably end this there because we are likely to go into a more deep dive on these shows at another time. So I don't think we should say everything that we have to say at this point, given that this is not the focus of this particular show. But I would just like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who got involved with the World Cup of Political Telly. Um, it was great fun to do and we may well do something similar again in the future. So do look out for that. Do follow us on Twitter. We are at ZT Podcast. Uh, and do keep in touch. And you know, We're always really happy to hear everybody's opinions on what our opinions are. However rude you may wish to phrase that, um, we only block when you swear at me. Um, so we can, you can swear at Steve all you like. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> but, uh, could, I, yes. could I just say, however, that whoever voted for Boss, well done, because I think Boss should have won, because Boss was the best, I think, of, of those that were, that were in the 32, Boss was the one that really should have won. It, it's really, really good. About, and it's a deeply cynical take on American local politics. I think that was something that really was good to get in there. And we should, should have won. John, do you have a, a, a coulda, woulda, shoulda? I mean, I think we're going to talk about mine in a minute, aren't we? We have that Because I'd probably just pick out. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. I've given you a segue. How about we talk about our friends in the north? <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> So yes, this this um, this week's sorry, I keep saying this week this month's focus. Uh, I'm going to make you do this weekly one day, Steve, just so that I don't sound like an idiot when I say that. Um, so this this month's focus is our friends in the north. Uh, so which we're going to hear a quick clip of now. Fifty Tory MPs on the payroll of lobby groups so far. That's what we found out. How about you? You talk to your friends in Fleet Street. I just can't get excited about all this thing. Look, 
There are bent MPs on the take. What else is new? You'll never prove anything. They're much cleverer about it than Edwards and Seabrook ever were, and nobody cares anymore, Eddie. Nobody expects anything better from politicians these days. I should have known better. You've always thought this place was a sham anyway. Well, I expect better, Nicky. Turns my stomach to see what's happened to this country. The Tories have turned the whole place into one gigantic nothing shop. This last came over here to learn all about the mother of parliaments. Well, it might be the mother of parliaments, but the Tories have got their hands up their skirts. Sorry to be crude, Francine. So, you're not interested. Fair enough. What I'm really saying is this. As far as I remember, you came here to get houses built, to attack poverty, to speak up for people who have no voice in the world. And what are you doing? Getting pissed in the bar and playing the same irrelevant political point-scoring games as the rest of the wankers in this place. I mean, is this what it's all about for you now, Eddie? Sticking your tongue out at the Tories? It's pathetic. So, John... This was your suggestion, in fact, that we cover our friends in the north. Uh, I think it came from when I uh, was very kindly invited onto your Skylines podcast, uh, which everybody should listen to. Um, so what is it about this drama that you love? Uh, there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of different elements to it that really sort of grabbed me when I first watched it at a, at a relatively formative age, of like 22, 23 or something. Mm. But firstly, it's... It's epic. It it takes place over 31 years. You you get to, it's the first thing I saw where you kind of really get to see kind of characters grow and change and fail on that kind of time scale. There's a lot of different elements to sort of political storytelling. So there's there's plots about housing policy. I'm, I'm a sucker for housing policy. <laughs> this that's, is you and me. That's a big, this is you and me geeking yeah, out housing big, again. <laughs> but that's but you know, 60s housing policy is a big thread. As is police corruption. As is uh, lo- local government and the sort of the, the struggles of the Labour Party in the post-war years, and plus it's just it's got, got some really great characters and really great acting in them. It's just there's it, it just had a sort of a, a depth to it mm. that I think was was relatively unfamiliar on television at the time when it was first broadcast in 1996. It's quite sort of theatrical in in the way that's kind of like every line every scene has a point to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an astonishing who's who of British um, actors and actresses. I mean, the 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 secondary characters, people like Eddie and Felix, are themselves, you know, really, really great, played by incredible character actors. Um, I, I have a little shout out to um, one of the characters who plays the wife of Tosca's mate, who just turns up, who played my favourite ever character in Emmerdale. So I was just like, oh, I'd forgotten she was in this. <laughs> So that was, oh, that was yes. a little gift, yes. like Easter egg yeah. for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the cast is extraordinary, and I think, as you say, the sweep that it has—it's—it's it's so yeah. ambitious. And you know, yeah, to it's a large extent, difficult. it actually lives up to those ambitions. Well, I'm I'm old enough to remember seeing it when it came out in 1996, and it made a tremendous impact mm. at that point in time because part of it is is contextual i think um in, in the sense that it came out um just as the conservative long period of conservative government was ending um new labor looked fairly inevitably that it was going to form you know the next government there was you know talk of all these various changes that were going to happen and moving away from thatcherism and our friends in the north comes in at that point and it starts in 1964 with the characters, or at least some of them, particularly Nicky, say, you know, looking around him. And it's 1964. It's coming to the end of a Tory, long period of Tory government and Labour led by a new, young, dynamic leader who's promising a new Britain is, you know, is, is apparently going to take all before it and change and change Britain. And and so there were, when it came out, there were lots of echoes or apparent echoes. Um, between what was being depicted and what was actually happening. And I think that, that added quite a bit to it. And, and obviously when we watch it now, it's, it's rather different because actually it wasn't a very hopeful series. When you know, Peter Flannery, who wrote it, was, you know, it was based on a, on a play from the early 1980s. It expanded into this big nine-part series, um, which was basically about corruption because it's, it's about corruption. That, it's... There's the four characters, and it was and it was sold, you know, to the B, to BBC Two on the basis it was a posh soap, and and the characters are very interesting and they all interact with each other. But essentially, 
politically anyway, it's about corruption, corruption in in in, in local and national government, corruption in the police, and and the the hopelessness of actually tackling that corruption through parliamentary politics. It's a kind of an anti-reformist kind of text. So um, so it's, so and, and I think that's why it remains an interesting series today, uh, because many of the themes are themes that we sort of still take you know it's as important about politics about the the impossibility of maybe radical change or the difficulties of radical change and our perception that politics is inherently flawed um and you know borderline corrupt so i think so i think it's it is remarkable and it there, I, I can't think of many series dramas on tv um that that really deal with that historical period with that kind of political ambition. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think it, it's the ambition that I think is remarkable. I think corruption is is hard there because it's you know some of the corruption portrayed in the show is is very literal. There's you know police corruption, there's corruption in, in housing policy where you know a, a private company is literally paying off local councillors to get its get its deals through. But it's also corruption in in the sort of or a metaphorical sense where it's sort of the corruption of ideals or as people you know become older and more cynical and just lose their their idealism so re-watching it in, in preparation for this podcast one of the things that really sort of leapt out at me uh maybe this reflects having got older since i first watched it but one of the threads that really leapt out in this time is the relationship between uh the sort of lead protagonist nikki played by christopher Eccleston, and his father felix who's played by peter vaughan um and, you know, at the start of it, Nicky's a very sort of idealistic young left. He wants to get out there and change the world. And his father is just this kind of miserable, cynical, you know, they're all bloody same, nothing's ever going to change. And basically over the period of 30 years, you kind of like watch Nicky transform into that same kind of character just through his experience of trying to make the world better and being repeatedly knocked back. But there is that scene in the, in the last episode, because when, when Felix, yeah, because you're absolutely right, right even right at the start in the, in the early 60s, Felix, Nicky's father, is this deeply cynical figure. And he always talks about the Jarrah March and about, you know, it, it didn't achieve anything because he went on the Jarrah March. It didn't achieve anything. Um, so he kind of is, is presented as giving up on politics at that point and thinking the Labour Party, which attacked the Jarrah March, was completely useless as well. And and you're right, Nicky has this kind of arc where he starts off as the bright-eyed idealist and then he goes through various experiences and gives up and starts to become a photographer. Um but at the very end, when, when, when Felix has got um, Alzheimer's, uh, Nicky takes him to see a woman who was a young girl while the Jarrah marchers were going through her village. And she actually t- tells Felix um, that he did change something because he had an engage. He, he, he interacted with her father. And then the father said at the end, as they were leaving, you know, down, go, going down to London, the marchers, that he, he'd taken from that that actually you don't have to just accept being, you know, being oppressed. You could actually stand up and do something about it. And that's and that and then Nicky turns to his father and said, look, you know, it wasn't a failure. Your life wasn't a failure. It, you know, things can change. And then his father, who is, you know, well gone with Alzheimer's by this point, then just defecates himself. Yeah, <laughs> most amazing metaphor, isn't it? Like, it's, it's, you know, he literally craps himself. At that point. He, li- he, li- he, li- he literally does. Um, and and that's kind of sums that kind of sums up the sums it up a bit because you know there isn't you know but what did Jeremiah's change? Not that much, but it did change how this person thought about things. And then the response is Felix defecates himself. So it's it's it, it's it's very dark, but there is some tiny little bit of hope in it that politics despite all of this corruption despite all the things that are being shown in it there's a tiny suggestion that something might change but it is very very small it is basically and and flannery confirmed it himself he just said basically corruption is endemic and you know there isn't very there isn't much chance that anything's going to change Uh, and he certainly didn't think that new labor was really going to change anything because he was obviously 1996 new labor is not even in government and he's been quite preemptively cynical about that yeah one of the things i was really struck by watching this time round is the extent to which it predicts the 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 the, 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 the flaws of New Labour. So the character of Austin Donahue is based on um T Dan Smith. T Dan Smith, yeah, yeah. So Mr. Newcastle from the sixties is quite a slightly dodgy local government leader. Um 
but that's an, uh, uh, an absolutely amazingly new Labour character is this guy who like puts too much faith in in greasing the wheels with, with private companies to, to attain actual public goods. Like, he doesn't, as far as we know, massively profit from the corruption he, he engages in. It is largely about sort of getting housing built and trying to sort of improve Newcastle. And he gets completely stuffed by it. Everyone hates him and he goes to prison. It's quite an extraordinary... Um, I mean, Austin Donoghue, I think, is one of the most interesting characters in it because he is slightly corrupt, but he's slightly humanly corrupt, if you see what I mean. And... and in some ways, the story is, you know, when you open the door to that much corruption, this is how much floods in after it. So he ends up being sort of almost a victim and certainly a victim of the industry that um, that turns on him. But actually, you get Nicky saying towards the end, at least Austin Donoghue built the bloody houses. Yes, but, but of course, the whole series is very much anti-conservative. So... Uh... Um, yes, Austin Donoghue may be a bit corrupt, but at least he's not as corrupt as the Conservatives is kind of an almost predictable line from it, really. But but yeah, it's I don't I mean, Austin Donoghue is is an interesting character. I mean, he, you know, the series ha- is, is based in in real events. I mean, there was there was a tremendous amount of corruption in the 1960s um, through John Paulson, the builder and who is who is depicted in the series and his relationship with Austin Donoghue i.e.t. Dan Smith and the Metropolitan Police was riddled I mean certainly the uh, obscene publications mm. lot were, was riddled with, with, with corruption it's all all of it's true in a way what, what, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what, what Flannery's trying to say other than they're all corrupt and, and the problem with Britain and British politics is they're all corrupt corruption is endemic He's, none of the characters are able to escape it nobody is able to um, really work in, in a positive way to change things. Even Mary, because Mary, Nikki and Mary have this on-off relationship that starts starts the series and they kind of end up back together again after lots of bumps. But Mary was going off to university um, at the start of the series. Then she gets pregnant and so she can't go to university and she becomes a housewife. But then she comes back and you know trains as a lawyer and, and becomes deputy leader of Newcastle. I think it must be Newcastle and then an MP. And towards the end, she, towards the end, she's identified with New Labour. But, but even she, but, but so she's kind of a worthy character, and yet she's still tainted by by New Labour because it's, you know, Flannery makes it clear that he doesn't really think New Labour's up to much. That he has one character that says you just like the Tories at the very end. Mm. Um, so it's it's kind of hopeless, and, and in a way, yeah, John, John's right. He kind of does predict things that go wrong with New Labour, but in a way, that's because he thinks nothing is nothing good is ever going to come of anything. So, of course, you know, when you look back, you know, you we think, well, New Labour could have done this, could have done that. We're all a bit disappointed. Well, he predicted the disappointment because his basic line is everything in politics is corrupt. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, watching it. It's kind of difficult to work out exactly what Flannery wants. Mm. Like he Mm. doesn't seem to he he doesn't buy it. He, he, He can see that there's a problem with kind of the old left approach to labor and that you're going to get completely crushed by the system but at the same time he doesn't like any of the compromises necessary i mean mary basically ends up as kind of a new labor mp right it's kind of a subtext mm. there and and the succession of characters tell her how bloody awful she is for it like nobody turns up and says actually you know what you've had a very difficult you've been dealt with a very difficult hand in life and you've pulled yourself up to, to rise to these great heights where people are talking about you as a potential leader of the Labour Party in future. Nobody ever says bloody well done, do they? No one ever says, <laughs> you know what, actually, you've done really well for yourself. Mm. People just tell her what a terrible disappointment she's been the whole life. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, I mean, the treatment of Mary, I have to say, in throughout the show, she is treated either as an adjunct to Nikki or a cautionary tale and... The point where Nicky decides to cheat on her, which he does once they're married, um, comes just after she's had to make a very difficult political decision as a senior counsel officer, uh, where she sets an illegal budget. And it's almost like the writer is basically saying, <laughs> you deserve this because you had to set, just as you decide to set an illegal budget, therefore it's fine that your husband has run off and slept with someone else. And the scene, oh, she's on the phone talking about this difficult decision that she's had to make. And you see Nicky all upset because he's had yet another row with his dad. And I'm fairly sure that what the writer is supposed to make be making me feel there is oh poor Nicky, Mary's not focused enough on him and I'm just sitting there thinking you selfish sod <laughs> I, I didn't read it like that at all because like I mean like I read it as like the, it's, the narrative is far more critical of Nicky throughout than I'd noticed when I was a kid and thought he was the hero and, because I and, thought like, he was the he hero really, the first time around watching it. I was quite surprised by how much I didn't like him this time around. <laughs> He's just, I mean, like, something I, w- I will say really has dated well is that, like, kind of the young idealistic sort of blokey lefties are all very, very well observed. It's very, very recognisable. There's a wonderful moment where he's walking with Geordie and he's been taking lots and lots of photographs of homeless people. And he shouts at Geordie, do something useful, and then runs into the police, clearly getting his camera confiscated and thus doing nothing useful. Yeah, they just beat the crap out of him. That's his idea of doing something useful, is running to some police who are going to beat him up, while Geordie just kind of swings off into the background. And then that happens again at what is quite clearly... um, the, the, the miners getting beaten up. He gets, once again, he gets his camera confiscated. I'm, I'm amazed he managed a retrospective of his photography, to be honest. But don't you think, I mean, because often we talk about Nikki and, and Mary, because they, they are the overtly political characters, aren't they? What Nick, Nikki's the idealist who kind of loses it. Um, Mary is, is, the, is the kind of, the pragmatic, you know, she works at it, she gets to a certain position of, some influence and being able to do something, but the, there may be compromises which we are maybe meant to think are unacceptable or not. I'm not too sure. But then there's the other two characters, aren't there? Which, mm. like Tosca, who I remember at the time, you know, first time around thinking, what a idiot. And, you know, having no sympathy for him. And he starts off, he's, he's only interested in in getting off, you know, sexually with, with Mary. He's, he's an extremely randy kind of a person with no interest in politics. And and he kind of because he starts off his what is he put he's stenciling um, crates to break to, for for things that are going to break um, the embargo on Rhodesia and he's completely oblivious he doesn't really care and then he becomes a small business person and then he joins kind of on the periphery of the Conservative Party becomes a Freemason um, he's getting all kinds of info about how to buy up dodgy properties to make money out of the DHSS and then he wants to get into a scheme um, to make money out of council house sales. So we're not really, you know, meant to think nice things of him. But he, I think he comes out of it as actually the best character is in the sense that he's more he's more flawed, but he's more kind of human than than, than most of them. Uh, and he also seems to learn much more than any of them, because to go back to your point about the sexual politics, he's, he starts off as being a traditional kind of Georgie male, calls all women sweetheart and all that. And then he ends up with his second wife having a kind of a joint a proper partnership in business because she basically tells him this is what's going to happen. So in a way, he kind of learns the most, even though he is the most apolitical figure amongst them. And he go, you know, he loses businesses here, there and everywhere. But in the end, he's still there. And, he's, and he seems to have learned, at least in terms of his relationship with his wife. Um, 
And then there's Geordie, who is like the, the working class victim. He's like the working class who's got, he doesn't even, he doesn't ever appear to know when there's an election. Cause, you know, whenever there's an election, he says, Oh, I didn't know there was an election. Every time. I mean, he kind of <laughs> makes the point all the time, Flannery, about this. But he's the victim, isn't he? Ultimately of, of the, of a corrupt political system, of a corrupt, certainly of the corrupt police system, um, in, in, in London. And, and I just wonder what you thought about those other two characters, because people normally talk about Nikki and Mary, don't they, when they talk about it, Sue, because they're, they're the most overtly political ones. John? I mean, I think, I think the... Georgie is an amazing performance by Daniel Craig, mm. by the way, before he was famous. So like, it's, it's almost worth watching it just for some of the hair they make him wear during the course of it. Alone. Yeah, all the, all the bits where he's sat watching strippers with a sort of innocent abroad slash clearly <laughs> getting turned on. Yeah, but but I think the, the, the interesting thing about Tosca's storyline is you're right, he is kind of he is kind of saved by the love of a good woman, but that's in itself <laughs> quite problematic, isn't it? I mean, like because for, firstly, like there there is kind of a narrative throughout that like you know it's men need women to save them from their own worst impulses so Judy goes off the rails when he's sort of prevented from having the great affair of the love of his life mm. or like Nicky never quite settles down because he's because Mary isn't there for him it's kind of strongly implied so so the fact that Tosca's uh, life is saved by by the love of a good woman is a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable it's kind of it's sort of not really sort of encouraging anyone to take responsibility for their own lives there the the other thing I noticed watching it this time round is actually like his good qualities are, are are sort of more there at the beginning than I realised. Like he is a he is a misogynist. He is a total cynic. He does basically steal Nicky's girlfriend behind his back. But at the same time, like he's just he's much better with people than Nicky is. Like one of the reasons happens at all is because like in kind of like in that first episode, he's capable of talking to Mary's family and her disabled brother. Like like he's a human being rather than standing there thinking he's above all of them, which, which he does to basically everybody for nine hours of this thing. So it's not, you know, her running off with, with Tosca is not quite as irrational a decision as I think I sort of thought it was when I first watched this, when I was a 22 year old idealist who kind of thought that this sun shone out of Nikki's ass, basically. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I think Tosca does grow. I think he's the only one, really, that is allowed mm. to grow in some ways. Um, Mary almost shrinks. Um, she sort of maybe she grows in the middle bit, and then by the end, she's you know, she's a sellout. And there's also a very odd scene where she seems to be acting as lead social worker for this one child in her constituency. At which point, I'm like, do you have any idea what MPs actually do? <laughs> Um, because that, I mean, the whole sort of blaming her for the death of Sean is quite extraordinary, really. Um, but Geordie, Geordie's ending is very odd. Geordie walks along a bridge and that's good. That seems to be the mm. entire ending that we get for Geordie. Nikki and Mary, we assume, end up together. To- Tosca has the loveliest ending where Geordie sees him and the family that we weren't sure him and Elaine were going to have playing together um whilst celebrating their night of success where Tosca got Tosca got to achieve his lifetime ambition of being in a covers band. <laughs> and but what what did you think about the the Collinson family? Um because Felix um and I forget what Nikki's mother's name is, but 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 Nikki's father and mother are kind of become victims of the of these juvenile delinquents. Mm. And, and Christopher Collins in particular, who is himself the result of a, a family of, of uncertain provenance. Um, you know, his father's run off. There's some other, some other blokes in the household. His mother seems to be, you know, un, un, unable to control anything. And then, and then Christopher Collinson has a son, Sean, who is the, who is the one that, um, the MP, as you say, chair, chairs a social services meeting about and who ends up um, driving a car into a wall because he's, you know, his father has rejected him. His mother's gone off somewhere. I mean, I'm, 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 I was wondering who are we meant to blame for for this? Because 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 the whole series is kind of there's there's a number of things going on, but one of the themes of the series is the failure of politics to address the interests of the working class. You know, to do something for those people whose lives, you know, are, are, are shaped by poor housing 
very, you know, bad jobs, but, you know, whose lives are not good. And the failure of the Labour Party to really do anything about it because of uh, corruption. And, and the Collinson seemed to be the kind of um, the expression of that, you know, the result of that. But I'm not I'm not quite sure how to interpret it, because um, there, there's a debate about, you know, is it is it structure? You know, is it is it because of the housing? Is it because of think all the cuts in the 1980s? Or is it, as, as Mary seems to suggest in her new Labour way, because the parents didn't take responsibility um, and that then leads to being accused of as being a Tory? So I just wonder how you how you took how you took that, because that's kind of an important ending, you know, that the working class is kind of out of control. Has it been betrayed? Is this the result of, of all of that? Or is it just bad parenting? It was just re- a really... It was un- an unresolved kind of an end, even though Sean Connison tr- drives right into a wall. That's that's a, that's a very definitive ending, but I'm not quite sure what we're meant to make of it. I think a lot of that ties in with it's a very overtly Catholic series. Mm. So a lot of the a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the characters are Catholic. We see a couple of Catholic funerals, um, but there's all this stuff about original sin. So like Nicky is basically living out the doomed to live out the sort of disillusionment of his father over a much mm. longer time scale. Um I, I think there is a similar thing here that there are there are original sins in the world that you can't that you can't fix. I think tied in with that is just it's something it does dramatise very well is the fact that it is difficult to deal with social problems. It's not just a matter of mm. of, of kind of, you know, reaching out and helping people and, some, and you know, with enough funding and better housing, everything can be made better. And I think the, the series dramatises quite well the tension between, the tension within the left between the urge to kind of idealise the working class and the sort of, the tendency to kind of recall when you're faced with, with people who are just going to be sort of arty and aggressive with you. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and a successful left-wing government needs to kind of deal with, with the latter rather than just kind of thinking, God, this is, this is ugly, I don't want to be near it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are, it, it's the sort of the, the noble working class versus the actual, uh, you know, the, 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 the actual lived reality yes, of people that. who grow up on very, very dodgy, difficult council estates. Uh, and I think there is a, a real tension in the show that is actually quite realistic on that. I, you know, it, 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 it tries too hard sometimes to make the noble point, uh, and, but it never forgets that the Collinses are also human. And when you see, uh, I think Anthony, who is Mary's son and a police officer, but a good police officer, um, makes the point at the end, you know, this is Sean when he's eight and you love him and you, you really care about what's happened to him having lost his mum. Now he's 13, you've written him off as a job. And you know, at what age do we write off these, these people? And what, what age do we give up on people? And I think that's a really quite well-made point in the series. Um, I think Sean in some ways, and I think that this is quite deliberate because they bring the two at the, uh, together at the end. He's reflective, uh, reflective of Geordie. Um, where you know Geordie is a you know starts off as a young carefree young man then you know bad things happen to him um, and he loses everything and is lost for about a decade of the show um, and quite clearly has you know strong mental health issues but at the end he seems to have come good and we don't really know how or why um, but he seems to have sorted himself out. No, I don't think Julie comes good at all. I think like there are enough hints in that last episode to suggest that you know he is he's screwed forever now. Like the bit where like he, where, where, where Tosman and Elaine take him into their house and give him this a great big bedroom, and he just kind of like curls up on the <clears> floor yeah. and then trashes the room. I thought, well, okay, he gets drunk I think and gets he's into a fight. on a journey back from where he was the episode before where he was quite clearly suffering from severe psychosis so he's not there anymore is sort of what I'm the point I'm trying to make the bit where he exchanges to support him through that though and there isn't there isn't anyone it's just it's very very no one's going to stand by him through the difficult this is where I find it a bit confusing because he comes back from the psychosis where he says to his psychiatrist that the Labour Party told him to burn his bed (laughs) Um, and he has the lovely line, I think that's why they didn't win the election, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he's, you know, in that last episode, 
And we don't know why. He is not suffering from that psychosis anymore. And that is what I mean by he has a better ending. But I think he and Sean, you know, we don't think Geordie is going to go on to great things, but we know that he's not at the pit of despair that he was in at one point. Mm. And for me, I think that's reflected in his meeting with Sean and his sort of strange exchange with Sean. You're quite clearly seeing... Here's a young man going through almost exactly the same things that Geordie went through as a very young man. How is this story going to end? Gosh, it's only going to end one way, right? Mm. This really is... I mean, that was something I picked up and, and from, from it watching it again about the fathers. And it may be linked to um, John's point about original sin and the Catholic nature of, of, of it. Because um, it's it is subtly Catholic. I mean, it's only halfway through. I think that it's revealed that they're all Catholics or they're mostly Catholics. Um, but Nicky's relationship with his father, whose father being deeply cynical and showing him no love, we we discover towards the end was replicated by Nicky by Felix's own relationship with his own father, who was deeply cynical and showed him no love. And we don't know what. You know, Felix's grandfather and beyond, and, and all of that. Is is this because you know, is there something going back um, between you know men and their and their fathers? And there's something flawed there. And also, Geordie, Geordie is is a victim of abuse from his drunken father. Yeah. And like like you, you know, Sean Sean Collinson um, um, is is a victim of abuse by his own father, Christopher. We don't know. I mean, Christopher's father has abandoned him, so we don't know what happened there. And I mean, I think the only good father is is Tosca's father, who's who's the baldy guy who plays the um, the drums in the band. Yeah, and there's an embarrassment Tos- to everybody. But Tosca's family are very explicitly supportive. Yeah, mm. like they're clearly yeah. like like they may they may be deluded about his musical talents, but they're clearly very supportive <laughs> of the sound of his his ambitions. And you know, I feel in some ways I feel that's not a coincidence that he's he's the one who comes from the least broken home and then mm. although having said that, he's still a bloody terrible father to his own kids. So he is. Yeah, he's a terrible father uh, but, to Anthony and Bernadette. But that last scene where you see yes, him in a garden lovely. playing with the younger children mm. seems the to say maybe he's yeah. learned, maybe he's moved on. Yeah, and also that that kind of because he and yeah yeah because Mary and, and Nikki, I mean Mary's relationship with her own son is difficult, and her daughter who seems to be okay, she seems to be okay with, she disappears to university to so never hear about her again. They have this fractured relationship, which may or may not come to anything at the end. Um, and they, they are the most political of the characters. And there's Tosca, who is surrounded by this family love. And there's, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but it seems that, you know, those political characters, they're the ones who are kind of a bit unhappy. You know, trying to get public happiness, they fail and they don't get private happiness either. Whereas Tosca, who never cared anything about public happiness, in the end gets private happiness um i don't know if he's trying to say anything implicitly or explicitly about about politics but for, for a political drama it's highly hostile to politics i think can we talk about i mean going back to the catholicism element of it can we talk about how mary's role in life is basically to suffer and be what other people need her to do which is, this is something that I found incredibly frustrating on this viewing, but that is, to be fair, made explicit in that that awful scene in the final episode where her son just lays into her yeah. for being. Um, and and like on the one hand, like the guy is being a complete tit, but on the other hand, it is quite nice that someone's finally said, "Can you stop sacrificing yourself, stopping a bloody martyr, and do what you want for mm, once in mm, life?" Mm. And it was it was almost a relief to find that that was a deliberate plot point rather than just the writer thinking that this was the role of the the good wife and mother. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I find Mary such a frustrating character because she's quite clearly the one with the most potential <clears throat> and mm. fails to live up to that episode after episode after episode for exactly those reasons. She's, oh, I must put others first. And it's that. And So I found that scene really interesting because while... I was like, Anthony, you are not the one who gets to say this. It was actually exactly what I had been screaming at the television for eight episodes. And this is where he's just, Anthony's just decided to leave his wife and children yes. for completely underexplained under reasons. Yes. And it's a conversation where it ends up with him yelling at his mother. It's really, you know. <laughs> there are, I mean, some, there are a lot of um, archetype women in, in the show. 
So you get a couple of the mums. So you get either the the great sacrificer of some sort of Nikki's mum who is perma mm. suffering. Um, you know, she yeah. she has so many burdens, and yet she's always a good, cheerful woman. You <clears> get the uh, Tosca's mum who thinks the sun shines out of Tosca. Uh, you've got Mary the Martyr. I mean, they even called her Mary for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> and then you've got uh, Nikki's dreadful um, posh trot girlfriend who becomes a weird terrorist. Who she does become a terrorist, gauge, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, who? Yeah, she's an unpleasant figure, isn't she? She's incredibly unpleasant. Uh, you're the one time Mary actually shows some backbone is when she stands up to Nikki's ex-girlfriend. The problem is, is that of course you're actually sort of half meant to see that not as Nikki as Mary standing up for herself, but as being jealous of Nikki for Nikki. Mm. No, well, I, I, can't, I didn't read it like that. I thought that was like one of the rare moments where you kind of see how Mary and Tosca ever worked as a couple because they are completely together on that. They're like, you know, they're, just, they're not going to take this sort of snobby woman up from London kind of sneering at their little life. Like they kind of do join together and march out together on that. And that's one of the few moments where you actually see them ever operate as a unit. Yeah, I think partly because it was so unlikely and so un hadn't happened at any other point that I felt there was a subtext of this wouldn't have happened if she wasn't Nikki's girlfriend. Yeah, maybe. So I think we've sort of explored the stories of all four of the main protagonists. Uh, there are some other extraordinary characters who you see coming through this. I think from a political television perspective, one of the key ones would be Eddie, who is the... Uh, the local activist who becomes an independent MP because he's not selected by the Labour Party, um, which again is a very sort of veiled criticism of new Labour doesn't like old Labour. Um, and then, of course, gets co-opted almost immediately, which really interestingly, of course, was mirrored years after the, dra <coughs> the drama aired in the story of a certain Mr Ken Livingstone. Oh, I think that's a bit harsh comparing him with Ken Livingstone. Well, Eddie. I don't compare um, him with Ken Livingstone in terms of who, who he is, and he certainly never said yeah. anything um, ridiculous <clears throat> in the way that Ken <clears throat> has been doing recently. But, you know, the, we don't like you, you're too old Labour, so we won't select you. Mm. You will run and win as an independent on the back of that decision. As soon as you do, we will re-co-opt re you into the Labour Party and you will become our guy again. That, that all but happened with Ken five years later. Yes, yes. But but I think, I mean, Eddie is there, I think, to represent, uh, maybe grudgingly on Flannery's part, that you know, there are good people in the Labour Party who, who aren't corrupt, because Eddie is, 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 is implacably uncorrupted by, by, by all the money that's flowing, you know, to all the other Newcastle councillors to, to sort of pr push forward this, this, uh, this, this building project. So he isn't corrupt. Um, it's and, and one reason maybe why he doesn't get selected is because he's he's a bit he seemed to be a bit of a troublemaker I think within the local party i.e. he sticks to his principles and then when he does become an MP it's when he does rejoin the Labour Party he's not again he's not co-opted in the sense that it becomes you know strict party line he wants to change things and and as Nicky says yeah. you know in, in that in that scene um, when when they have a big round Nicky said well you were elected you know you said you were going to change everything what have you changed and he's changed nothing. And then when he tries to expose the um, the corruption of the Conservatives in the 1980s with all of those PR companies buying MPs to say nice things in Parliament and to lobby for, for their for their various interests, he's he's stitched up by one of the PR companies. So he's basically silenced and he resigns, you know, decides to retire because he's, he just realises he hasn't achieved anything. And he's then he dies of a heart attack, you know, in that great big storm in whenever it was, 1980. 87, 1988, yeah, and and he's and he and he dies a kind of broken figure. You know, he is parliamentary, the parliamentary road for the Labour Party, and he achieves nothing and dies a rather sad, tragic death. Which is, you know, Ed, Eddie's a very important character, but it's it's a very negative kind of character, I think. It's very difficult to point at anyone in this show who ever actually sets out to do something and manages to achieve it. I mean, other than Tosca managing to get rich and then stay rich, despite explicitly losing all his money in the crash of <laughs> 1987. Anyone who tries to achieve anything in, in public life gets mm. repeatedly battered down. Well, I keep also thinking of, like, 
even the sort of nice non-corrupt policemen, like one of them goes down for having been in the room where someone was handing out £20 yeah. notes, despite the fact we've watched him fight corruption for the last three episodes. Ron Comrade, mm. that's the character's name. Um, and and so the, the, the nice old uh, Geordie Copper, who, who, who writes the, the report on corruption in the Met, and it's in, it and like sends it at like 10 a.m. and it's back in his desk by 11 a.m. because the Home Secretary isn't even going to bloody read it because he and the Met have an arrangement. But like he again, he stands up completely defeated. Like his his success in life is in kind of persuading Mary's son that she wants to be a, that he wants to be a policeman rather than actually sort of achieving anything within the realm of law enforcement. So it's really it's it's not a show you'd, you'd want anyone to watch if you wanted to inspire them to a career in public life, is it? <laughs> No, not not at all. And and because at one level, um, you you could see it because because Paul Foote, who reviewed it in 1996, I mean the Trotskyite um, celebrity Paul Foote, said that this proved the series proved um, that reformist, you know, the reformist road uh, is impossible. You know, a few a few well-intentioned people trying to manipulate the system. Uh, to you know, advance various progressive causes that can't work, and he saw the series as proving that. But I think the series was it went went beyond that. It wasn't it wasn't a Corbynite text before Corbyn, even though Nicky um, increasingly looks like Jeremy Corbyn when he gets his beard and his glasses. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's really spooky how much he looks like Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but 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 the series, you know, from Flannery's perspective, is isn't to say well there there is a possibility and it's the left, it's hard left, it's the Benites or whoever, uh, because he shows them up to be you know priggish, incompetent, you know no, they 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 don't achieve anything either because he's saying something very fundamental and something very basic and something almost pre-political, which is corruption pervades everything and it will prevent you know the people that really truly want to change things from changing things. And then the people that don't really want to change anything, they're, they're the ones that will probably prosper. So it's 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 a very, you know, it would really put you off uh, politics. And it's and it's really quite interesting that people went because I remember watching it and thinking, oh, Nikki. Yeah, go on, Nikki. Um, and and it's like you you think of it as being about an idealist. And yet there is there is no idealism except the broken sort, the one that wearily has to give up because it realizes you can't change anything. Well, that's a cheery note to end on. <laughs> I mean, I, it, I, Not my fault. <laughs> I think our friends, I mean, our friends in the North is an interesting text because lots and lots of people in politics absolutely adore it. I mean, it's it's you know, people are always telling me how much it influenced them to get into politics, which is, as you say, quite surprising when you rewatch it and realise how cynical it is about politics's ability to change anything. But maybe, maybe when we were younger and idealistic, we took different lessons from it. Maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should ask a young person to watch it. Uh, you two are obviously young people, but <laughs> I'm feeling very middle-aged at the moment. I think we all are by the sounds of it. <laughs> yes, I think we are. But the interesting, th- one of the interesting things about about um, our friends in North and Peter Flannery is that he moved into TV writing and. He eventually ended up writing, I think, most, if not all, of the episodes for a series that went on for quite a few years, but I'm not sure made much of an impact on the political class. Inspector George Gently, uh, which which um, which was about a detective who moved from London up to Durham in the 1960s, and he confronts all the corruptions which are depicted in Our Friends in the North. It's a kind of our friends in the north for middle britain um in the early 21st century it's really interesting that and that's kind of mainstreaming many of the themes that um that we've been talking about in this political drama and i you know i wonder whether the people who were watching it um were thinking of it you know in those terms but it kind of it's kind of interesting how that deep cynicism has become mainstreamed into rather comfortable period dramas which inspector george dentley essentially is well, that, maybe that's one for the, a future podcast. So I think we'd probably better wrap it up that's there dreadful. because we have been going for quite some time. Uh, John, thank you so much yeah. for, for joining us. Uh, really, really appreciate that. It's been great to hear your your thoughts on Our Friends in the North and its impact on politics and and the difference between our initial one rewatching and the, the way that different ways that it's made us feel. I think it's really, um, it's really useful sometimes to revisit those texts that we think are so formative 
We should probably all rewatch it again in our 50s and see what it's like then. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you to John for joining us. Uh, I would also like to say thank you to Lord Stuart Wood of Anfield for our theme tune. Um, Steve and I will be back in a month's time, uh, so do please get in touch on Twitter. We are at ZT Podcast to let us know what you think we should be talking about. And we will be back soon. We gotta get out of this place. birthday to me happy birthday to me happy birthday dear skylines happy birthday to me i can't help but think that would have been more fun if i still had a co-host oh stephanie we miss you Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.